Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to all elders, past, present and future. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust, a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Through the support of the Ewing Trust, Fitzroy Library is able to run special events and programs, including the Fitzroy Writers Festival for the benefit of Fitzroy residents and visitors to the area. On this podcast, we are joined by writer Khalid Wilson, a contributor to the recent anthology of stories called After Australia. In this unflinching new anthology, 12 of Australia's most daring Indigenous writers and writers of colour provide a glimpse of Australia as we head towards the year 2050. Climate catastrophe, police brutality, white genocide, totalitarian rule and the erasure of black history provide the backdrop for stories of love, courage and hope. Khalid will read his short story, List of Known Remedies, which is his contribution to After Australia, and then we'll talk about his involvement in the anthology. After Australia is published by Affirm Press in partnership with Diversity Arts Australia and the Sweatshop Literacy Movement. It's available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. List of known remedies. In less than a week, my first poetry collection would be released. It was out of my hands now, and all I had to do was stay alive until the next one. I was considering how to spend my morning when Sam called me and asked me if I could drive him and Meteor to the vet. What happened to Meteor? He swallowed a beer bottle cap, said Sam. Every time I thought of Meteor, I couldn't help but imagine my AA's reaction to the idea of a 30 period dud. When I was eight or nine, I told her that I wanted a dud for my birthday, and she turned to my mother and said, look at what your child is saying. She said it in English so that my mother could understand and it was one of the only memories I had of her. He'll appreciate you coming to see him, said Sam. He had adopted Meteor the previous spring on the advice of his therapist, who told him that the unconditional love of a pet would do him good. I found the logic dubious. Sam was stuck in a grueling clinical psychology PhD and was working part-time as a substitute high school teacher, and the last thing he needed in his life was a dog, particularly one like Meteor. He was an absolute disaster of a dog, a nervous wreck, and prone to bite or throw up at any moment. The throwing up was particularly messy. Meteor's sensitive bowels were a thick vein of misery for Sam, who, after an exhaustive process of trial and error, determined that Meteor would only eat a specific Swedish brand of dog food called Killmat. Sam shipped it in bulk from Sweden via New Zealand to get around the trade embargo, and bought a second fridge to store it all. But Meteor wasn't even halfway through his supply when he decided that he didn't eat Killmat anymore. On top of this, Meteor was also a natural escape artist. Once, after a lively encounter with another puppy at the dog park, Meteor stopped and, guided by an esoteric signal, sensed the momentarily abjar gate behind him. He spun around and shot off, squeezing between a woman's legs. Meteor ignored the startled Rottweiler beside the woman, 
which was surprising as the escape itself since Meteor never passed up an opportunity to sniff a new dog's butt and he disappeared down the street. Sam and I combed Westfield Street together that evening and were about to head to my place to design and print some lost dog flies when Sam gave a shout. A moment later, Meteor crashed into me. I tried my best to throw him off and he nearly got me this time. But before I could put some distance between us, Meteor bounded off again, this time with my hat in his mouth. Sam ran off after him, eventually catching up to Meteor at a bus stop, but the damage was done. I would never see the hat in one piece again. The first review for my poetry collection had come out the day before in Thermometer, written by a critic I hadn't heard of named Paul Strongman. The name struck me as a highly aggressive one for a critic, but I was lucky to have even one review, so I savoured reading it. The review was measured but positive, characterising the poem Dion Brand as an attempt to wrestle with the anxiety of influence, which sounded wild to me. I called that poem Dion Brand because I was reading her book Inventory while listening to Young Thug, and I thought it would be a cool idea to change the titles of some of my poems to the names of poets. I sent the link of the review to Rosie and she responded immediately, quoting the least charitable line, scattered but with much promise, followed by several knife emojis. Her response, the speed, the informality of it, thrilled me. This was a new thing, a new and strange thing. I'd first met Rosie in a welding workshop at the Free Learning Centre in Footstray about two years ago. I was working on a long metal bar that was supposed to sit horizontally against the wall to be used as railing for the steps leading up to my front door. Unfortunately, I was starting from zero when it came to the sorts of practical skills that went into making things, and I had a bad habit of retaining almost nothing in classroom settings. I met Rosie the first day that our instructors led us into the workshop. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but it must have been dangerous because Rosie suddenly filled my vision, saying, Are you alright? Then the instructor came over to, de- to do a safety demonstration, using me as an example of what not to do, and I didn't see her again until three months ago when she came into the Dan O'Connor Hotel. It took me a moment to recognise her as she walked up to the bar. She had her hair at chin level instead of the buzz cut she sported while we were attending classes together. You're that guy, she said. I gestured at the bar and shrugged as if to say, yeah. Good to see that you still have your limbs, she said. She was my only customer this late on a Tuesday. I found it easy to lean against the bar and talk to it with her. We had some surprising things in common. She was also the child of a second-generation migrant father, Somali in my case, and Chinese-Malaysian in her case, and a white mother. We were both fluent in Auslan, and we were learning Indonesian on Duolingo. She had the same opinions as I did about alternative education models and lifelong learning. She'd moved into an apartment around the corner on Carpenter Street and had just finished up unpacking when she dropped in for a pint. I live so close to here it's ridiculous, she said, and then asked me what time I finished work. I found myself confused by her question. I told her that I was going straight home. She said, okay, very slowly, and then left. She didn't look back as she walked away. I picked picked up her empty pint glass and took it back to the rack. I felt embarrassed and guilty and foolish all at once. Jackie walked over from the other bar. Who's she? she asked. She was wearing a loose and ripped t-shirt, which looked worn but new at the same time. Earlier that night, Jackie had told me that she was considering getting a septum piercing. I tried to imagine her with it and realised that I was staring at her nose as I spoke to her. She just moved around the corner, I said. 
Oh wow, she must be loaded. The thought hadn't occurred to me at all, but now that Jackie mentioned it, it was a pretty expensive area and Rosie said she lived alone. I'm going on my break, I said to Jackie, and picked up my jacket from the basket under the bar. I began to walk away and then stopped and turned around. I think you could totally pull off the septum piercing, I said. I know, right? said Jackie. I walked past the toilet and into the kitchen. I found Ramesh drying his hands over the sink. Bro, do you reckon you could chop us up with a quick sandwich? I asked him. Ramesh looked around theatrically. Sure, we've just about closed the kitchen. Let's chill out back for a bit. He beckoned me over and I hovered over him as he made a lettuce, tomato and cheese sandwich and cut it into two triangular slices. I took one slice and he took the other and we walked out into the back door of the pub. As we passed Don's office, I spotted him asleep at his desk, his face covered by a copy of the Age newspaper. There was a new calendar on the wall above his desk. It was bright blue and featured pictures of Greek islands. We sat on upturned milk crates and faced the bins as we ate. As usual, Ramesh quickly demolished his sandwich half and lit a cigarette. I lingered over mine, forcing myself to slow down as I ate. I was following the instructions on a mindfulness app I'd downloaded a few weeks ago, and, on the app's advice, I started eating slower, or, as the app called it, eating consciously. When I was done, Ramesh offered me a cigarette and I declined. I pulled out my notebook from my jacket pocket and unclipped the attached pen. I wrote down the word, OK, in my notebook, and then, Rosie doesn't look backwards. Underneath, in red pen, was an arrow, in the words strata, slash littoral, which I'd written a few days ago while watching a documentary on rock formation. What's that? Ramesh asked. I'm just writing things down, I said. Ramesh waved his hand in dismissal. Nah, man, me? I don't write anything down. I keep everything in here, he said, pointing to his temple. He took a shallow drag of his cigarette and then exhaled. Three people can only keep a secret if two of them are dead, he declared. Ramesh was older than me by almost two decades. We came from vastly different backgrounds, but we had an understanding that transcended age. He would talk to me about his childhood in Mumbai as the youngest son of a rickshaw driver, and I would tell him about Julie, the 40-year-old woman I dated when I was 17, who taught me how to do my taxes online. The agreement was this. Ramesh would say something, and I would nod and agree with him. And then I would tell him something, and he would say, that's just how it is, I'm afraid. He had a rare gnomic quality to him, hugely expressive eyes and sagging, almost Nixonian jowls that trembled when he spoke. Yeah, I feel you, I said, and thanked him for the sandwich. Not a worry in the world, he said. After work, I went home and attempted to edit a poem. I was deleting and undeleting the word littoral over and over before I finally gave up and went to bed, but not before I fished my notebook out of my jeans and took another look at the word okay and the arrow shape next to the words strata slash littoral. Could a shape contain a whole poem? I didn't know. A couple of days later, Rosie came by the pub with three blonde white women who looked like they came from a religious cult movie set on a horse farm. They were all wearing expensive boots and light denim skirts and unbleached linen shirts and had their hair in simple and practical braids. They came to the bar as one and the tallest woman said, Oh, I really do love Melbourne pubs. Rosie stuck her, her tongue at me. Hey, Rosie, I said. Fancy meeting you here, she said. One of the women laughed, her teeth looking bright against her deep tan. You just moved here and you already know your local bartender. Rosie shrugged. I'm a nice person. People like me. 
Later, when she came up to the bar on her own, I asked her if she wanted to hang out sometime, and she said, Sure, we can hang out sometime. Her eyes were incredibly dark, brown, almost black. It made her gaze knife-like. I added that to the list of things about her that I was noticing. We didn't see each other again for almost two weeks. Rosie was performing in a play that was showing at La Mama, and the lead-up to the opening night was filled with rehearsals. The play was a satire, the script of a verbatim reproduction of the infamous Q&A episode that aired during the seawall vote. Rosie was playing the member for Jellybrand, Caitlin Wu, whose famous speech railing against the proposed bill made her a brief star on the internet, and whose spectacular form from grace due to a plagiarism scandal during her career as a reporter was the subject of a Palm Door winning documentary. After the final dress rehearsal for the play, Rosie invited me to a bar in Fitzroy. I spent an age trying to pick out my out- outfit and ended up going with a black coat and black jeans along with a white t-shirt that said, Die Wall on it, die, in the same font as the masthead of the German news magazine Der Spiegel. I regretted my choice as soon as I got onto the tram. I saw myself as others saw me, assimilating the grotesque and turning it into wearable art. What was I saying? I never knew. That was my problem. I found the bar, but the door was harder to find. I had to curl myself around a giant potted fern to get to it. Rosie spotted me as soon as I walked in and introduced me to a friend who was with her. Noelle was a producer of a theatre company that was putting on the play. I recognised her from the pub. She was a tall woman who just moved here from Sydney and was still enamoured by Melbourne's relatively cleaner air and dying pubs. Rosie and Noelle knew each other well. I learned that they'd come up together in the theatre scene in Sydney. Their conversation about the results of the latest Resources Council four-year arts funding round was beyond me, and Rosie must have noticed my silence, because she turned to me suddenly and said, I know exactly which emoji I am. The warmth in her tone threw me off. It was as if she was revisiting an old conversation that we had never had. Rosie poured me a glass from a jug. The part of me that was a bartender noticed immediately that she had exclusively preferred pale ales up until now. I took a sip and considered showing off and saying, is this a morbid towers pale ale? But dismissed it. I didn't want to resort to cheap tricks to impress her. Does everyone have an emoji? I asked. Absolutely, everyone has one, said Rosie. She was sure and I felt compelled to believe her. The bar was dimly lit and the lights hung low, suspended from the ceiling by chain and wire. The booth we were in was built around a square table on three sides. Our drinks were served in white and black and red porcelain. According to Noel, who'd asked the bartender all about them, they were pocked with blemishes formed during a traditional manufacturing process hundreds of years old. Aren't they lovely? They're from Japan, she said. The warm light reflected brilliantly off the porcelain. It reminded me of a moment from a Junichiro Tanizaki essay on light. He was writing about the specific interaction between warm, low light and porcelain bowls. The light penetrates the superficial layers of the porcelain and scatters in the subsurface layers, causing all of the colours, but particularly red, to attain a deep brilliance. I'm definitely the sneezing face emoji, said Noel. My sinuses are a menagerie. That's a Sydney leaving your body, Rosie replied, and then immediately added, sorry, that's just a bad joke. For a moment, there was a familiar and wretched silence as we considered the ramifications of the continent's forest cover being turned to particles that shred the membranes of our lungs. Rosie broke the silence. I've decided that I'm the smiley face with a cowboy hat. I can see that, I said. I know, right? I have an Akubra at home that you'd definitely pull off better than I can, said Noel. I wonder what mine is, I asked. 
Rosie didn't respond, but later that evening, after we'd all said goodbye and I was on the train home, she sent me a message that consisted of an upside-down smiling face emoji. The message made me silly with joy. I'm drunk, I thought. When was the last time I was drunk? It must have been over a year ago, at Sam's 30th. I decided to go to the cafe at the end of my street before heading over to Sam's. I saw Chris outside the cafe, refilling a dodgeball with water. The other week, Chris told me that she'd be moving to Darwin when she finished her degree. I'd since been making extra effort to stop by the cafe and chat with her on days she was there. She'd been working at the cafe for four years, the entire time I'd lived in Hyde Street, and I found myself preparing to miss her and wishing she'd stay. Even a small thing like my favourite barista moving to Darwin was enough to expose my sense of equilibrium for what it was. A fragile, treacherous moment that leaves you in its wake. Next to the bowl was a puppy that looked like it was at least part staffy. Its owner was admonishing it preemptively. Wait till the lady fills the bowl, he said to the dog, which did not move and gave no indication that he had heard him. Mirio had, ske- had skewed my perception of normal dog behaviour. I half expected the puppy to suddenly shoot off into the distance. He's so well behaved, said Chris, as she scratched it behind the ear. He forgets himself sometimes, said the owner. As soon as Chris finished up filling up the bowl, the puppy dove into it, sending some of the water flying out. Chris laughed brightly and wiped her hands off on her apron. The grass outside the cafe was dotted with red and yellow leaves. It was a glowing day and the water droplets shimmered in their flight. The night before I had been sitting in a bar telling a friend of mine about an essay I had read about trees and she told me that Bertolt Brecht only mentioned trees a few times in his poetry. What times are these, he wrote in one poem about Germany in the 1930s, when a conversation about trees is almost a crime. I felt that to locate joy in a moment was such a necessary thing. Chris's laughter was bright, and her voice broke at its highest register. The light was brilliant, visible as striations between the branches of trees, the low morning sunlight scattered by the faint, ever-present smog in the air. Chris greeted me warmly as I approached and ushered me inside. It was just after the early morning rush, and the cafe was empty except for three white men with matching border force lanyards at the big table, having a meeting, and the man and his dog outside. She began making my coffee and sent my order through to the kitchen. Then she told me about her plans for the weekend. My folks have this place out near Cape Otway. I love the drive out there, especially at night. They want to sell the place before the next fire season, so this weekend's probably the last time we can get out there. Do you reckon they'll find a seller? I asked her. I didn't know much about the rich people housing market, but even I had heard about the forecasts and predictions over the next few years. Whole swathes of the countryside would soon be rendered uninhabitable, with no water and bushfires all year round. I don't know, she said. I'm sorry you'll miss it. Yeah, me too. It's my favourite place. The house is so full of memories, she said. My Cuban sandwich with extra pickles arrived, and she placed it in a brown paper bag. I had gotten the same one every year, every time for years. My consistency continuously delighted Chris. Cuban with extra pickles, said Chris, handing it to me. I thanked her, and she said, easy goings, which was new. A few weeks ago, she had greeted me with a kiss on the cheek, and that was also new. Chris was forever trying new greetings and goodbyes because she forgot bored of saying the same things over and over, as she had once explained to me. It was an aspect of her personality that I had started incorporating into my own life. The other day I said hiya to a customer, and it was thrilling. As I left the cafe, I had an urge to text Rosie. I'm becoming bold. I got into my car and sat inside for a few minutes, thinking it over. 
Rosie once told me about a theory she had. According to her, it was possible to imbue an unsent text message with such energy that the person who it's meant for would feel that you are communicating with them directly, even if the contents itself never reaches them. After several minutes of thinking about it, I texted her, Howdy, along with a cowboy face emoji. Sam's place was a mess. There were empty pizza boxes and mugs with curdling tea in them all over the living room. Sam himself looked very tired. His eyes were ringed and he looked like he hadn't shaved in days. On the coffee table was an unopened Amazon box, presumably containing a new kind of dog food. Meteor sent his apologies that he can't be here to greet you himself, but, you know. I looked around Sam's living room, relishing the freedom to just stand still. Ever since Meteor entered Sam's life, I'd stopped coming over as often to his small one-bedroom apartment. Whereas before his apartment seemed spacious to me, these days it was a cramped battleground. Meteor would immediately crash into me and begin barking whenever I entered. Sam insisted that Meteor loved me and was only excited to see me, but sometimes it felt like Meteor saw me as a threat to his relationship with Sam. At work, Jackie thought I was jealous of Meteor replacing me in Sam's affections, while Ramesh thought that, I, that Meteor previously had racist donors. Sam was oblivious to this, which annoyed me, but I was also aware of how happy Meteor made my best friend. The dog has given him purpose and structure. They seemed to share a bond that I couldn't understand, having never owned a pet. Sam led me to the bedroom where Meteor was bundled up in thick blankets. I peered closely at the dog. How long have you been trying to eat bottle caps? I said to Meteor. He just loves them, doesn't he? said Sam. He brushed past me to smother Meteor in kisses and scratches. Meteor seemed grateful for the attention and seized up dramatically as he moaned, leading Sam to seize up as well out of sympathy. The poor thing, said Sam. He looked like he hadn't showered in days. His apartment had a stale and heavy smell, as if he hadn't opened a window in days either. I approached Meteor and he stirred, picking up his head. He stared at me out of one baleful eye, like he was calculating attack strategies. I'm sorry you're so sick, I said to him. Meteor moaned in response. Sam picked up one of Meteor's front paws and mimed a regal wave. Thank you for coming to visit me. My pleasure, I said to the dog. Meteor had his head on Sam's lap as I drove us to the vet. He seemed more alert now that we were on the move. I was suddenly feeling guilty for dawdling so long at the cafe. I didn't know that it was serious. I told Sam and he waved my apology away. It's my fault, really. I don't want to bother you by making you rush over to mine, he said. Cool beans. Cool beans? Sam raised an eyebrow, waiting for an answer. People say it. People say it? Rosie says it. Rosie? I've never heard of anyone with that name before. Is she a friend of yours? said Sam, his voice incredulous. I snuck a glance at Meteor, who hadn't understood a word of what we were saying. He looked uncomfortable and unhappy about it. I felt for him strongly in that moment. They wouldn't let me into the patient room. The nurse in charge gave me an arch look and pointed her pen at a sign beside the corridor that said, Staff, pets and owners only. No visitors. Which stopped me cold in my tracks. I loitered outside the clinic front door and was overcome by a familiar and deep longing for a cigarette. I welcomed the craving like an old friend, along with its tension and distraction. I had quit smoking three years ago when the price of a 20-pack of smokes tripled. Not to mention, I had, around that time, discovered that my teeth were developing tobacco stains. My father had deeply stained teeth from a lifetime of smoking, and I had always promised myself that I'd get new teeth if mine ever got that bad. I had enjoyed cigarettes perhaps more than I did any other solitary activity, as much as I enjoyed finishing a poem. 
I found an outdoor bench and sat down and tried not to think about whether my career would fizzle out into nothing after the release of my promising, if scattered, first collection. After a few minutes, the nurse, who had barred my entry into the surgery earlier, came out for a smoke break. She looked younger than me, in her early or mid-twenties. She sat down across from me, and it occurred to me that I might be sitting in her favourite spot. I was shaded from the wind by the broad, leafy oak that dominated the small park beside the vet, and the edges of its branches cast cool shade over the seat, unlike the seats across from me, which were bathed in the full light of the sun. Are you with the beagle? she called out to me. Yes, Mirio, that's my friend's beagle, I said. Cute little guy. She was smoking a Chinese brand of imported cigarettes, and it smelled like it might be harsh. Can I bum a smoke? I asked. She finished her break and stood up, handing me one as she walked past me and went back inside. I brought the cigarette to my mouth before I realised that I didn't have a lighter. I suddenly felt foolish and stuffed it into my front pocket, where it stuck out the top like a pen. Sam eventually came outside. I didn't know you started smoking again, he said, spotting the cigarette in my top pocket. I shrugged. Sam always hated my smoking habit and had been trying to get me to quit for years. He also never stopped inviting me to his weekly pick-up basketball games in North Melbourne, even though I had never taken him up on the offer. How's Meteor? I asked. Sam exhaled deeply. Yeah, it turns out he ate three bottle caps, not one. They want to keep him overnight for observation to see if he passes some of the bottle caps on his own. Poor little guy. I feel so sorry for him, I said. Me too, said Sam. The veterinarians told Sam that there was nothing to do until Meteor tried to take a ship, so we should just come back tomorrow. Since we were in Yarraville, we decided to head to the park and gawk at the part of a massive gate they were building in the former duckyards. Huge blocks of stone were waiting to be shipped to offshore construction platforms, formed massive blocks and pyramids on the yards, where shipping containers were once stacked just as high. We found a nice spot that gave us a good view of the construction site. Of course, you couldn't see the whole structure. It was just too large to fit into a human's perspective. In fact, it took a considerable amount of mental gymnastics to realise that the massive altar of crisscrossing steel that filled our vision across the river was in fact a small corner of the portocallis. I still don't understand how they get that thing all the way out into the middle of the ocean, said Sam. I think they float it out there, I said. We sat in silence for a while, watching the trains and trucks moving blocks of stone around. Eventually Sam asked me to drop him back home. On the way, he said, Look, congrats on your book. I'm really stoked for you and your poetry is going to blow everyone away. I'm sorry if I didn't communicate that earlier. I wanted to hug him, but I didn't want to accidentally crash and kill the two of us, so I tied my grip on the steering wheel and renewed my attention on the road. Thank you, I said. Sorry about this thing with Meteor. What can you do, said Sam. By the time I got home, I only had enough time to watch two episodes of Knives in Siberia before I had to shower and get ready for work. It was mid-afternoon and the sun was brilliant, casting long and low shadows. I elected to walk to work, and by the time I arrived, 15 minutes early, I was feeling unusually energised. The happy hour crowd from the tech firm across the street was just beginning to trickle in. Their company was currently trialling a four-day working week, which meant that on Thursdays they had the whole place to themselves, and after-work drinks became a ritual for them. In the back office, Don was hunched over the ancient computer he used to run the pub. I greeted him as I passed to get to the lockers. Is Jackie here yet? he asked, without turning away from the dense Excel spreadsheets on his screen. I only just got here, I said. Don grunted and turned back to the computer screen. After I stowed my bag and coat in my locker, I went through to the kitchen on my way to the bar. Ramesh was leaning against the sliding door of the fridge. 
Chef, chef's not here yet, he said. Again? What happened to Mohammed? Ramesh shrugged. No idea. He just stopped showing up. Is Jackie here yet? I haven't seen her. I peered through the hallway and into the bar. It looked busy and I wasn't on for at least another ten minutes. I had nothing better to do so I followed Ramesh out into the back courtyard and we sat on the milk crates facing the bins. The kitchen staff think he was taken by the police, said Ramesh. Is there any way to find out if he was? I asked. Ramesh shrugged. Hard to know without getting involved. I finished work at close to 1am. Rosie had texted me earlier that evening, asked me if I wanted to go to a party in Brunswick East with her, but I told her I was working. What time do you finish? She replied. I told her that I told her the time, and she didn't respond for another few hours. At close to midnight, I got a text from her saying, drink plus boogie at Rope Factory. And then half an hour later, went to sleep, XXX. The exchange left me feeling stretched out and relieved. Don was in a bad mood due to Muhammad's absence, and the kitchen service was terrible all night. I could hear Don in the back saying, not good enough, to the kitchen staff. I felt bad for Ramesh, who was forced to do Muhammad's job and his own in the kitchen. Jackie was insistent that the police took Muhammad, and she told us about a series of raids that the police were conducting all over Melbourne that week. Her story was backed up by the fact that Ramesh claimed to have heard sirens all night the past few evenings. I was inclined to believe her. As the only indigenous person at work, we all assumed that Jackie knew more than us about these things. It was common knowledge that indigenous people had their own secret internet that ran on parallel infrastructure, so she was the one we all turned to whenever we heard a new rumour. It's almost certainly because of the Exclusion Act, Ramesh said, when he came over to the bar for a knockoff. It was almost closing time and Jackie and Don were counting the money in the registers as I reset the bar. As soon as Ramesh mentioned the EA, it was as if the air in the room soured and we were suddenly bored by the whole discussion. Don finished up at the counter as his register and looked around. Why are you lost still here? he asked. I asked Jackie if she could drop me off at home. Sure, she said, and I followed her to the car park. Her black Civic was in the same spot it always was, to the left of a broad plane tree. I heard you have a book coming out, said Jackie as we got into the car. Yeah, it's a small collection of poems, I said. What's it called? A list of known remedies. Remedies to what? I don't know, I said, and I thought for a moment and spoke again. It's about shame and guilt and the intractable problems inherent to living. Ah, said Jackie. Well, that's what a review that came out the other day said it was about, I said. I like the word intractable. It feels nice, even though the meaning isn't, said Jackie. You're right. Intractable, I said. Intractable, Rosie said, before giggling. We'd stopped at a red light on Dinan Road. Ahead of us was a van covered in a thick layer of dust. Someone had scribbled fuck with their finger on the back window. I feel like I get drunk around you guys, even though I'm not drinking anymore. How is it? It's boring, but I feel good about it, said Jackie. I found it strange how she was so talkative and easygoing outside of work, but so serious and quiet when on the clock. When we pulled over in front of my house, I turned to her and asked, Do you really think the police took him? Jackie took a deep breath and said, Fucked if I know, hey. They do it on purpose, don't they? They make it so that we can never really know for sure. I didn't know what to say. I felt a knot forming into my stomach. What was there to say? Are you working tomorrow? I asked her. Nah, I've got tomorrow off. I was thinking of getting my piercing done, she said. I was at my door when Sam called me. 
and picked up while juggling the keys with my other hand. Hey, mate. I can't sleep, said Sam. I need to know if he'll be okay. I just need to know he'll be fine. I'm sure he'll be fine. Mirio is a champ. He's a goddamn champion. He's so good. Have you eaten at all? Not really, said Sam. Can you do that, please? And drink a lot of water? Then go to sleep, please? Sam promised me that he would. The next day I went over to Sam's place around noon. The door was open and I let myself in. Sam was in the kitchen eating cereal and watching the news. There was an accident on one of the offshore platforms constructing the seawall and seven contractors were dead. The Prime Minister was on the news visiting the families of the deceased. He was surrounded by large and square-faced men in uniforms, their chests glittering with medals as he awkwardly forced a grieving widow to shake his hand. As a reporter spoke, the news ticker updated the running tally of fatal accidents on the construction platforms, as well as providing an updated casualty figures for an airstrike that had accidentally hit a school bus near Lahore, as well as showing the latest run tally from the cricket. Sam turned off the TV and greeted me warmly. He looked transformed. He had shaved and was wearing a clean shirt and seemed in much better spirits than he had been the other day. His place was still a mess though, with empty cups and plates and takeaway packaging all around. Do you want some cornflakes, he said. I just ate. The vet just crawled. Medio passed all the bottle caps with no problems at all. The nurse from the other day wasn't working when we arrived, and I managed to follow Sam into the vet's office. The vet, a rather, a rather weedy-looking white guy with thick, round glasses, was effusive in his praise of Medio. He's a real trooper. We thought we'd need to surgically intervene, he said. Medio was at Sam's feet, watching us discuss him. Sam was crouched down, rubbing his side. I reached over cautiously to scratch Meteor behind the ear, and he surprised me by leaning into my hand. You must feel so cooped up. Let's get you to the park, Sam said to Meteor, talking to him in a baby voice. As we approached Yarraville Park, Meteor took off towards the grass, and Sam ran off after him. Rosie texted me, and telling me that she'd taken the day off, and asked me if I wanted to grab a beer. I replied immediately, saying, yes please, I'd like that a lot. Across the river, a huge crane turned, lifting a massive steel beam into the air. I watched it spin slowly in the wind, suspended in the air by a thin film of wire about as thick as my forearm. Meteor tackled Sam to the ground and they both rolled around in the grass, laughing and yapping. Khalid, how did you get involved with this anthology? Well, I was in Sydney and like I was just hanging out there. Um, I was at the... Uh, writing New South Wales Boundless Literary Festival and they asked me to get up and talk about speculative fiction. And I was on a panel with Hannah Donnelly, whose pieces are, who has four pieces in this anthology. I don't know, talking to her about speculative fiction was just really fascinating because I was, I was talking about it in terms of a facet of an ongoing, ongoing concern that I have as a writer with alternative ideas of what the present, past and future could be. And uh, I, but I, I never considered them my main concern as a writer. And then on that panel, yeah, I was talking to Hannah about it. And then a little while later, Mohammed, who's the editor of this anthology, hit me up and he's like, how would you like to write a story? And all he needed to tell me was like, you've got a couple of months to do it and you'll be getting paid for it. And I was on board. And then, yeah, a year later, I finally submitted the piece to him and he ended up being the one that appears in this anthology. And which is really cool because having a, like now that I've got it in my hands, I've been like thinking about this anthology and having it be a thing that I was more or less working on for about nine months at the time, by the time it came out. 
And it was only when I when it did come out that I got to read everyone else's stories in the anthology, mm. and which is great because I I got it in the, I got it in my I got it in the mail, and then I immediately had to read my story to make sure that it was still good, and it wasn't like <laughs> there wasn't any glaring errors that I missed. And then once I made sure that there wasn't that that was okay, I read the rest of them, and then I started having fun with it for the first time. I read through some of your previous works, Australia Day, the, the whole. Uh, 1993 to 2018. Uh, some of these can be found online for anyone who's interested. You said speculative fiction wasn't your primary concern, writing concern. Your stories uh, focus on relationships between friends, uh, friendship groups, dynamics of friendship groups, um, relationships between partners, yeah, modern life in Melbourne. You know, in this story, there are things going on in the background. There are these things hinted at. You mentioned trade embargoes, a seawall, border forces. And it feels to me when I read it, the characters never seem apathetic to these things. They know they're going on. Um, they're not willingly apathetic. It feels like they're using distractions of culture, so movies, phones, uh, emojis, um, mm-hmm. as a way of dealing with the, the greater um, problems that are going on. Yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the things that I was explicitly aiming for with this story. I specifically wanted the apocalypse to be a light touch. In the apocalypse, I mean the more abstract sense that we think about it nowadays as more of an ongoing catastrophe as opposed to a singular event or thing. But yeah, I wrote it during the time of the bushfire crisis and there was about a week or two where I'd step outside of my house and in the evening and I'd be just absolutely like floored by the beauty of the light as it filters through the particles in the air. And something I think, yes, one of the, the narrator in the story is really preoccupied with that specific notion of acknowledging something that's beautiful, even though it's wrapped up in this ongoing crisis that it has become our lives. And that was the initial genesis of the idea for the story. And that's definitely one of the things that I was aiming for with that. I was more or less trying to write a story that accurately reflected, reflected how we deal with things that are larger than us. And I think having lived through several crises at this point, yeah, it's been really interesting to note that at every point life has really, it seems almost beside the point to mention it, but life does really go on. And and the things that concern us are the day-to-day aspects of living and the larger catastrophes intrude upon it, but but not so much as specific things that are happening to us, but more as an atmosphere that permeates all of our interactions. And dealing with that becomes the main drama of our lives. And I'm, I was interested in exploring that in this story. It also seems to me like the story ends just before something quite monumental is about to happen, or maybe you know a year from now, something pretty monumental is about to happen to these characters. Mm. Did you think beyond the story when you were writing it? Not particularly. Um, I think more than most stories I've written, this story is one where I usually, usually I, I with the with story with fiction, I'm invested in what the characters are invested in. But with this story, there's more of an alignment between the conversations and ideas and things that I'm invested in as a person, and the the things the characters in this story are invested in. So the story was is definitely an it has an ongoing element to me that is reflected in my own life. And there are a lot of you know similarities between me and the narrator in the story. We both work bar jobs. We both, well, he's a poet and I'm a writer, which like is a monumental difference if you ask me, but 
to people outside, it might not seem like a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, similar other things were both like the stories set around where I live in Footstray and <laughs> even, uh, even small details like my barista, my favorite barista, who's actually a really good friend of mine, is mm. now, has moved to Alice Springs and <laughs> around the time that I was working on the story. So instead of in the story, I believe she moves to Darwin. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think so. In, yeah. In terms of a world existing beyond the story, I think there are elements of the story that necessitate a suspension of belief a little bit. For example, the seawall, which you mentioned in, in the story, the Australian government is in the background, just working on this massive project to construct a wall around Australia. You know, increasingly, it seems, you know, in every in everyday life, like if you think about what things were like uh, 2014, 2015, not that long ago, mm. uh, and what, what ideas would seem completely preposterous back yeah. then that now seem quite realistic that could actually happen. Yeah, and the characters have all, are all quite bored by the idea of even talking about the seawall and all the other attendant cruelties that the government is invested in. Because they've gone through it. They've gone through the slow buildup of uh, the rhetoric and the language and the legislation. And there's even like the cultural touchstones in for them. Yeah, you know, things like an, a famous Q&A episode about the seawall, for instance. So a part of it, a part of it is deliberate because the fact that they're bored about it, these terrible things that are happening, is actually quite true, I feel. I feel... Like even now we talk about coronavirus all the time, but I explicitly sometimes tell myself, I'm not going to engage with all that stuff today because A, it's anxiety inducing and and confirming things that I know to be true, which is that everything's messed up. And yeah, sometimes I do feel explicitly bored by these conversations because they're so terrible and overwhelming and beyond my capacity to deal with. And the characters in the story are are inhabiting that vibe a lot more fully than I do a little bit. When the US election happened, the last US election, Barone was really worried and concerned and kind of looking on with shock and you're interested in it, but you're also, you know, hoping things turn out one way. Mm. And then it's almost seemed like maybe six to nine months after, uh, you know, Trump won, people just started tuning out. It was just too much. I explicitly would count down the amount of time it would take for any conversation that I'd have with a friend to turn towards Donald mm -hmm. Trump. And the frustrating thing was that I got bored with the way we were repeating things over and over again and registering our outrage. And at the time, I got frustrated with this notion of forcing each other constantly to sit with each other's outrage. And a friend of mine would talk to me about something that they're invested in and some new way that you know basic decency has been profaned by these people. And then I would sit with that and I'd be like, yeah, now that's something that I'm feeling. And I'm also feeling outraged and confused and anxious about it now. And then that'll just be the next week or two of my life would just be thinking about, yeah, 2017, the first six months was sitting around silences and conversations around, I don't know, but back then we were really, we were really quite naive as to how much worse things could get. I once met a friend of mine's new partner once and she had this really interesting perspective that I've never seen anybody have before. And I asked, how are you doing? And she responded, I'm okay, but my phone's made by slave labor. And at the time I was thought that was a really obvious, funny thing to say. And then I started talking to her a lot and she 
talked to me about how, yeah, it's an ongoing problem with her. She's really not okay with how we're reconciling complicity in cruelties every day and how the ways we sublimate the things that we don't understand into things like art, for example, um, is often, we often don't question it because it's so obvious to us, the incongruity between capitalism and anything that it touches. Mm. And yeah, and I sometimes like to remind myself that, yeah, I know that we're sophisticated enough as people to not get caught up on big incongruities in our daily lives. And cognitive dissonance is a great thing. But I was really grateful to that the stranger that I met who, you know, said something incredibly obvious that I don't hear enough. And oftentimes I like to actively remind myself of that. And I think it was interesting to me to think of what that would look like if the crisis itself is made absurd slightly and changed and wrinkled a little bit so that the incongruity, which in our daily lives is really obvious, becomes a little bit like what he said about assimilating the grotesque, that statement itself doesn't really mean anything. It's mm. it's just sitting with an acknowledgement of a larger thing that we don't that we kind of spend a lot of our time ignoring to begin with. And in the context of the story, it's something that we can't ignore. Mm. And in the context of the life of the specific of the character. Your story name checks are Dion Brand. Who are some of the other who are some of your writing influences at the moment? especially uh, you know, when you think about this particular story. Dion Brand is one of the poets who I've been rereading a lot lately. Yep. She does amazing and interesting things with metaphor and have been invested in that notion for a while, specifically with the idea of she, she has this very interesting metaphor where she breaks down that notion of the environment as a site of extraction, as a thing to be engaged with through extractive logics. And she breaks down that distinction and her poetry has this really beautiful sense of permeability about it where subjects categories aren't agreed upon where that very notion of injustice can be personified in the weather for instance which is another metaphor that tony morrison with this idea of racism as inevitable and as atmosphere or as weather it's not so much direct influences but it's more reading that i was coinciding with at the time while i was writing the story as opposed to what i was drawing from I really feel like it's like, without diminishing any individual contribution, the book itself is amazing as it, as a whole, as an object and the way it comes together. And each story mm. has such a distinctive voice and the imaginative capacities of these writers is really um, fascinating and interesting. And the diversity of just styles and genres and forms, while all hitting away, chipping away at this vague idea, which is which is what ties this book together. Well, a lot of these writers are some of my favorite writers. So a lot of their pieces are, are I'm a bit biased when it comes to writers like Claire Coleman and Karen Wilde and Omar Seika. Oh, and there's also Michelle Law's story, which I loved in this collection. I'm so stoked to be in the in and amongst their company. I can't I can't think of a better company to be part of. Your previous work has been published in The Lifted Brow, Overland, The Big Issue, Cordite Poetry Review, Lit Hub. What are you working on at the moment, Khalid? I tell people I'm working on a novel. I've been writing a lot of short stories. I've, you've read my the short story, The Hole, right? Yep. Yeah, so that one, that, that short story, The Hole, is just a, a continuation of a larger series of short stories with those characters. Mm-hmm. And so I've been writing stories about that specific group of friends, well, two siblings and, and, and one friend who all live together in this house. And I've been just plugging away at that for a while. So 
I've got a couple of those coming out in the next couple of weeks and months. And apart from that, it's just trying to survive, you know, day to day. Also, before we started the interview, you mentioned you're surrounded by unread books. Um, what books are you reading? Oh, yeah. at, what books are you reading at the uh, at the moment? Well, I finally recently finally read um, Gerald Manane's book, The Plains. Like, I feel like a bit of a goose right now, where I'm calling my friends and saying, "Hey, have you heard about this writer, Gerald Manane? He's great." So that's been my vibe lately. I'm looking. I'm, I've got a few of his other books on my bookshelf. On like um, the part of my bookshelf where I keep all the books that I will read once I'm a better human being. But um, I'm going to start reading some of these other ones again and see how that goes. Actually, I've been on a bit of a kick with like old, like, well, old school to me, Australian writers. I've been reading Helen Garner a lot lately. There's also this New Zealand writer, Imon Mara, who wrote 2,000 Feet Above Worry Level. Okay. It's a collection of short stories, which are all themed into, they're collected into a novel, but they're all interrelated short stories. They're absolutely great. They're fantastic. I've been I've been loving that collection or that novel. Do you mm. find, you know, when there's all this kind of more bleak stuff going on in the world, do you find yeah. that that makes you want to read that kind of material, like bleaker, darker material? Or do you find it works in the opposite way where you start a book which is really intense and you just can't handle it? Uh, I think a bit of both, really. Um, I recently, about a month or two ago, I reread that Philip Roth novel, the one about polio nemesis. Mm-hmm. I was rereading it and I thought I'd be a bit over talking about plagues and pandemics and stuff like that. I found it fascinating and I found it even more interesting because of the context that I was bringing to it this time around. Other times, I a lot, sometimes I just want to be entertained and distracted as opposed to engaged but when i am engaged i find myself coming at old things with new contexts and new understandings the funny thing is the stuff that we see as uh, small recent developments are actually like people forget that the novel is four or five hundred years old which is what i keep on telling my housemate who's into film and screen and i keep on telling him dude must be great to be into film because like you've only got a hundred years of history to draw upon to do your new shit whereas like working on a book is just a nightmare it's just there's just so much out there already and so much has been done and every microcosm it has been done to death by i don't know every every small thing in fiction turns out to have existed in large ways previously in others capacities that was author khalid warsom talking about after australia which is published by a firm press in partnership with diversity arts australia and the sweatshop literacy movement It is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Please rate, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast feed for more podcasts like this. If you are not a Yarra Libraries member, please join. It's free and gives you access to the vast collection situated across five libraries within the city of Yarra. Once again, thanks to the Ewing Trust for their support of literacy and learning in Fitzroy, and for making this podcast possible.